You're listening to On The Road with Mike and Andy, the number one Australian weekly trucking podcast made for Aussie truckies by Aussie truckies. Listen to On The Road on the Australian Big Rigs Radio Roadshow and via podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify and now also on iHeartRadio. Just search for On The Road Aussie Trucking Podcast. On The Road is brought to you by NTI, Australia's leading transport and logistics insurer. Visit the website at nti.com.au. G'day all and welcome back. You'll recall that last week Mike told the story of the bloke who drove his four-wheel drive postie truck from Melbourne to Germany. Well, this week he interviews a guy who rode a push bike from Stuttgart to Melbourne. Not only that, he makes beer out of shellfish. Tony Fulton from Tone's Trucking Stories shares something that's really gotten up his nose and will most likely get up yours too in something to talk about later in the show. We've got our That's What You Think segment, On The Road News, plus music from Alabama and Randy Travis. Enjoy the ride, it's another big show this week. Here we go. G'day, I'm Yogi from Outback Chuckers, and when I'm on the road, we're always on the road doing stuff out on the road, but when we're on the road, we're listening to the big rigs on the road. (laughs) This is Simon Smith here from the Australian Big Rig Radio Roadshow.com. Truck and radio is what we do across Australia 24-7. Loads of truck and classics every hour. If you'd like to drop us a line, love to hear from you at some stage. Our email address, bigrigradio at yahoo.com.au. Catch it down the road and take it steady out there. The Australian Big Rig Radio Roadshow.com. The rollicking good trucking road song. It's Alabama with Roll On 18 Wheeler. Roll on highway, roll on along. Roll on daddy till you get back home. Roll on family, roll on crew. Roll on mama like I asked you to do. And roll on 18 Wheeler, roll on. Roll on! Monday morning, he's kissing mama goodbye. He's up and gone with the sun. Daddy drives an 18 wheeler and he's off on a Midwest run. And three sad faces gather around mama. They ask her when daddy's coming home. Daddy drives an 18 wheeler. And they sure miss him when he's gone. Yeah, they do. Ah, but he calls them every night and tells them that he loves them. He taught them this song to sing. Roll on highway, roll on along. Roll on daddy till you get back home. Roll on family, roll on Not his voice. It seems the highway patrol has found a jackknife twig in a snowbank in Illinois. But the driver was missing 
And the search had been abandoned Cause the weather had everything stalled And they had checked all the houses And the local motels When they had some more news they'd call And she told them when they found him To tell him that she loved him Fred Glasbrenner talked to him about the book that he wrote called Journey of a Lifetime, a journey by three young German lads after the Second World War coming down to Melbourne to see the Olympics. Fred, how are you? Yeah, good, good, good. You rode a bike from Stuttgart down to Melbourne. Yes. And arrived in Melbourne in time to see the Olympic Games in 1956. When I was 16 and my great friend, Theo, he was still 15, we more or less ran away from home because in those days I was supposed to be a toolmaker. And I got the living daylight belted out of me every day. And I got that sick of being hit all the time. So we actually ran away. And we went all the way through Switzerland and Italy, and we had to get visas and passports, of course. Ten marks each we had, and we got as far as Sicily in Palermo, where we sold our bikes because we met an Austrian three years older than we were, and he had some money, and we bought this little fishing boat, and we rode all along the coast of Sicily and Castellamare and, and some ports. We were the first Germans again after the war, coming in on a little paddle boat. <laughs> That's a story by itself. Anyhow, we finished up in Africa, where Interpol was already waiting for us. We tried to go to the Foreign Legion. They took the Austrian fellow, but not us. And, of course, Interpol grabbed us and sent us back to Germany. So you tried to join the French Foreign Legion in Africa? 
Yeah, they took the Austrian fellow, mm. and 40 years later, I met up with him again. I found him in French Guiana. Wow. But three years later, we met up with Uli, who was two years older. And because Theo and I, we wanted to become rich and have a grill station on every little railway station in Germany. But you had to be 21 to do a business. Right. So one day we decided, oh, well, we'll go two years around the world on a bicycle because there's an Olympic going on in a year's time in Melbourne. Yeah. So we jumped on our bikes four days before Christmas. It's snowing in Germany. 60 marks each in our pockets, the three of us. Yeah. And we finished up in Melbourne just on 11 months later. In time for the Olympics in 1956 in Melbourne. Yeah. And, you know, to this very day, I still have lunch with Ian Brownie and Tony Marchant, who won the gold medal for the tandem cycling in Melbourne. Okay. They even came here to our resort when I uh, published my book. So after all these years, still friends with some of the greatest cyclists all the world has ever seen. Well, I'm pretty sure they were pretty good. You don't get to go to an Olympics if you're not much good. We were also the first ones who rode a bicycle from Darwin to Melbourne because that's where we landed on the 23rd of September 1956. Right. Who's that in the background? Is that your wife, is it? Yeah, that's my wife, yes. (laughs) She used to be a, a Tivoli dancer, the Tivoli or Lido. Does that mean anything to you? The Tivoli certainly does. I know, I've heard of that. Yeah, and the Lido, yeah, she started out off. She was a dancer all her life. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. Wow. Anyhow, through every country we went through, we went straight to the president or the prime minister or the king. I saw that on the jacket of your book, and I'll just read some of this out just for the listeners. Yeah. Three teenagers decide to ride their bicycles from Stuttgart, Germany to Australia to watch the 1956 Olympic Games. They travel through Yugoslavia, Greece, Turkey, Iraq, Persia, which is now Iran, of course, Pakistan, India, Burma, Singapore and Indonesia before arriving in Darwin to ride south to Melbourne. During this epic journey, they met some very important people, the Shah of Persia, the Princess Soraya, yep. Pandit Nehru of India, Pandit Nehru, yep. King Faisal, and many others. After your extraordinary adventure, you finally arrived, and it's a, a remarkable story. And then, of course, you've gone on and done this abalone thing. Where's the book available? It's available at Amazon. Okay. And it's called Journey of a Lifetime. Yep. I'm writing the second part while I'm talking to you now. Right, eh? But I have to talk about the fishing industry first, about Port Phillip Bay, about the abalone diving. And there's quite a bit of writing to be done yet. Well, abalone diving became a really big thing, certainly down around Tasmania. Yes. And people make a heck of a lot of, well, they, they did make historically, I don't know whether you still do, but they did make a heck of a lot of money doing it. Oh, yes, at the time, yes, I started the factory, probably the best factory, abalone factory in the whole of Australia. Yeah, and our... Australian abalone exports, and our trademark, of course, was ocean gold. Ocean gold. Yeah. So just as a a side issue, just a quick question, how do you cook abalone? What do you do with it? Abalone is very good to have out of the can. Right. That's if it's done by a recognised abalone factory, of course. Of course. What do you do with it, though? 
Well, first of all, you wash it. Yes. If you get live, for instance, if you get the live, there's green lip and there's black lip and there's tiger abalone. Yeah. We're talking about the Australian one. Yes. Right? If you can get it live, you can just uh, shuck it, you know, take it out of the shell. Yes. Rinse it, wash the sand off it, and then cut it in very thin slices. Mm. And you can actually eat it like the Japanese sashimi, you know, with some wasabi and soya sauce. Right. So, yeah, that's a delicacy, of course. Or you can deep fry it for five seconds each side. That's all, five seconds. Okay. And they take it out, drain it, yes, a little bit of lemon over it. If you want to, a bit of salt and pepper, and you can eat it like that, and it is very soft. Right. If you cook it too long, it goes like leather, like the sole of your shoes. Right. Like all seafood, you have to cook it very quickly, but especially abalone and calamari, of course, very, very quickly. Okay, so. Yeah. And that's a business that you're still involved in, I take it, is it? Oh, you're still involved about 10%. After 35 years, we had sold out, Mm. but the guy, our opposition, a great friend of ours who we've been in touch with and competing for the last 45 years, he asked us, the son and myself, to come in with him and he wants to start off again with different products. We even make an abalone beer, believe it or not. Abalone beer. Yeah, you can buy it in Sydney. There's a shop up there. You want to try it. Instant erection. Oh, no, you can't say that. Yes. It was even written in the Herald Sun News once. This fella took me literally, and he wrote a big, (laughs) big story, a double-sided story. And it, it says there that if you eat abalone, you will probably get an erection within 15 minutes. There you go. My wife is laughing. Oh, she's laughing. I'm blown away because this conversation's taking a turn I never expected. Yeah, yeah. I think I'd like to get back to the bikes now, if that's all right. Yes, go back. <laughs> but if you go into the Avalonia and sit there, Look under Cansom, K-A-N-S-O-M. Cansom. You can go www.cansomaustralia and it will give you all the products about Abalani. I think I'm going to go and buy half a dozen of those beers though. Chemical free. We make a stout, a green lip one, a natural black lip. Yep. And of course we make beautiful sauces. Yep. From normal to medium hot and then a real hot one. Like an oyster sauce honey but with Abalani. But oyster sauce is full of chemical. Right. You know, cheap, cheap, cheap. <laughs> We're not that cheap. We're good. Anyhow, never mind about that. Go back to the bikes. I rang you up to talk about the bikes. The abalone is another issue altogether. And, and if you come down to Melbourne one time, you can call in at our place here and you can have a beer and I'll give you some abalone. No problem. Right. Oh, well, I might even take you up on that. I do get down there from time to time. So you jumped on your bike in Stuttgart. Yeah, back. Back to the bike. I've got to maintain some focus now. You've, you've distracted me. You get on the bike in Stuttgart. How old were you when you did that? 18 or 19 or something, were you? Yes, and then, of course, down through Yugoslavia and Greece. And uh, as you said before, you know, right over through the whole of Turkey and down to Syria. What intrigues me about what you did and what Gus did is you've set off on this journey and you said that you had 60 marks in your pocket. I don't know what that would sort of equal in today's money, but it doesn't sound a heck of a lot. 60 marks was in those days 10 marks to an Australian pound. 
we had three pounds each. So, but that was a lot of money in those days, wasn't it? It was a lot of money, but yeah, it lasted us because of the hospitality of the people, mm. whether it was in, in Greece or in Turkey or wherever, it lasted us to Aleppo. Right. In Aleppo, we thought, oh yes, now it's time that the German government will probably catch up with us yep. and send us back to Germany again, like they did when they caught us in Africa. Same thing. So they would have taken you back to Germany and basically said, you can't be here, we'll take you back. Yeah, we ran out of money then. Oh, okay. And through some German trucking company who was later on taken over by Gaddafi from Libya, we met up with an imam, mm. imam from the Arabic priest of the biggest mosque in Aleppo. And so what, he took mercy on you and, and helped you out, did he? He invited us to stay with him for five nights. Can you imagine that? Oh, no, I can't, but yeah. We had three Christians staying in the biggest Muslim in Aleppo. Right. And through him and through a couple of guys we met, we sold our radio. We had a little transistor radio. Mm -hmm. And because of that imam, we didn't get cheated. And we had 200 postcards of us printed. Yeah. And somebody wrote on the back of those cards that we were students. You had to be a student. Students from Germany riding our bicycles to the Olympics in Melbourne. Right. And uh, this card will help us when we sell the cards. Anyhow, I went to a Chevrolet and Studebaker place and showed that card to somebody and he gave us five Syrian pounds was equivalent to five Australian pounds. Wow. And then another guy said, buy yourself a large book and put photographs in with, with the people you meet and let them write into it. Yes. And from then on in Aleppo, we took a picture of the imam and we started going to the mayor of the town when we rode through Syria, through Homs and Damascus. Well, we went straight to the Lord Mayors in those towns and we were invited then in Damascus by universities and it was then non-stop. And then going back on the pipeline from Syria to Iraq, in Baghdad, we met our first king, yeah. King Faisal. He was only two years older than I am. And to this day, I still got a coin from his dad, from Gutsi, mm. the first king of Iraq, in my pocket here now. Wow. Of course, once you had those people in your book, yeah. doors started to open wherever you went. The Shah and the Queen of Persia, and we still got a, a special medal from Queen Soraya and the Shah. Yeah. Oh, mate, I tell you what, I'd love to go back to Iran once more because the people themselves are still there. Do you think you'd be well received, though, if you went back to Iran now? I mean, Iran's a very different place to what it was when you were there. Oh, you couldn't go to Iraq, no, but you could go to Iran. Iraq is still very much a war style and, and Syria. Mm. Naturally, when we went through Pakistan, and you couldn't go through Pakistan as a Christian today anymore either. Yeah. But in Pakistan, Karachi was the capital. Yeah. And we had uh, two hours with the president, the first president, Iskandar Mirza. Oh, yeah. 
since Pakistan and India were liberated from the English. You know, it used to be West and East Pakistan. East Pakistan later on became Bangladesh. Yeah. And we were invited by the president. Unbelievable stuff. We'll be back for the rest of this great chat right after this. There's nothing more devastating for a truck operator than to be involved in a serious road incident. We've all seen the impact of heavy vehicle accidents and at these times, when people are most vulnerable, it's critical that they have immediate support from a strong, stable, reliable and experienced organisation. NTI is Australia's number one truck insurer, the specialist you can count on to protect your transport and logistics assets, with the know-how to take control of the situation and the capability to reduce lost income by getting trucks back on the road again as soon as possible. Specialist products, experienced people, accredited repair and recovery networks and industry advocacy is what we do. It's our specialty and we've been doing it for more than 45 years. For more information, visit the website at nti.com.au or go to the NTI Facebook page. It's amazing to me, clearly, these people that you met and the experiences that you have and what you've carried with you, I can't see how anyone could possibly do what you've done today. I just can't see how it could happen. Especially not at 19 years of age. The world has changed so, so much, and you've seen a lot more of it than I have, obviously. It certainly had changed, you know. But India, of course, India was beautiful. And on my 20th birthday, we had breakfast, lunch with probably one of the greatest statesmen in the world, Pandit Nehru, who took over when Mahatma Gandhi was uh, assassinated. Nehru became the prime minister. Oh, we met at that time the richest man, Birla. If you ask an Indian if they know or heard of Mr. Birla, the whole of India knows that guy. He actually gave us 700 US dollars. That's Mr. Birla. And then from then, of course, we went to see the Taj Mahal and the holy cities of Amritsar and Benares all along the Ganges River to Calcutta. And from Calcutta, we then had to take a boat because the rainy season had started and we couldn't go through Bangladesh at that time. We had to take a boat over to then called Rangoon yes. in Burma. From Rangoon, they wouldn't let us go into Thailand at the time. So they organized for us, they will pay our fare on a ferry from Burma to Penang. Along the way, you, I mean, obviously you didn't, you couldn't plan any of this. All this just sort of yeah. fortuitously happened along the way that people helped you get on to the next step. Is that what happened? Yeah, there was no other way. And so were you introduced from people? Like were you saying, I'll go to this place and see that person and then that sort of helped you on? Or We always asked in every capital. Hmm. We asked about uh, the president or the Lord Mayor. Yeah. And, of course, the courting clubs, naturally, they helped us a lot, you know, with the free accommodation and food. Well, this is what I was going to ask you. I mean, where did you sleep? What did you do? How did you have a shower? How did, where did you go to the toilet? What did you do? Don't talk about showers. Sometimes there was a river, maybe. Yeah. 
quite often, which I said to uh, just sleep wherever we could under a tree or God knows what else, you know. Yeah. Some of the places that you were talking about are pretty hot and sweaty and pretty inhospitable at times. Oh, yes. And sitting on the set all day long, mm. you could well imagine what sort of sauce we had on our asses. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> oh, we had to have these uh, helmets, you know, these tropical helmets. Yeah. In Pakistan, we got them in a bazaar in Quetta. They, they told us that if we go south now, it's all going to be hot and hotter and hotter. Yeah. So we had these tropical helmets and probably from the middle of Pakistan down towards India, we only traveled late afternoon and very, very early in the morning for four or five hours. And then later on in the afternoon, another couple of hours. But we were extremely fit, you know, a hundred Ks a day to us, even so we had a lot of luggage. I've seen some of the pictures. You had a bit of gear there you were carting along. Yeah. So how long did this trip take? Well, we got to Melbourne, I think it was the 14th of October, when we were front page of the H and Argus in Melbourne. Mm. And then from the mayor of Melbourne, we got VIP tickets to the opening of the Olympics. Mm. And I still remember Ron Clark putting the flame into the Olympic flame. Yeah. Ron Clark later became the mayor of the Gold Coast. Yep. And the 50th anniversary of the Olympics, uh, Zara and I, we were VIP guests. Yeah. Yeah, with about 2,000 people and lots of Olympians. Mate, I tell you what, it's been a great life. It's been fantastic. I'm amazed by it. I really am. From Jakarta, we rode the whole of Indonesia, uh, Java. The north coast of Java, as far as Surabaya. And in those days, the roads were not finished. Well, they're not that bloody good now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we had met President Sukarno. He was the one who liberated Indonesia from the Dutch. Mm. And he became President uh, Sukarno. And he was in America on a state visit to America when President Eisenhower was president of America. Yeah. But we met his wife, Ibu Fatmawati, the first lady of Indonesia. Of course, you wrote in our book and we got photographs with her and all that. And she wished us good luck. Yeah. But in Surabaya, they wouldn't let us go any further. Because it was too dangerous, we would have been dead. Yeah. First of all, Timor and the Portuguese government type thing. Mm. And we, we didn't have a visa for Portugal anyhow. But the police didn't let us go. They wouldn't even let us go to Bali and from Bali further. Yeah. So they said, how the hell do we go to Australia? They said, well, you must go back to Jakarta. And catch a ship. Either a boat or a flight. Yeah. So we had to catch a train. A train? Yeah, and we did the south part of Java because at the university in Jakarta we had stayed and we went back there again and some guy from the papers, a journalist, he got in touch with us again and he went back to the first lady and she organized that we met or probably every minister in Indonesia from the vice president to the foreign minister 
to the minister, to United Nations, to... I got them all, and they're all written in my book here. <laughs> and we never met them at Parliament House. We met them in their private houses. That's incredible. That's unheard of. Nobody ever did that. You're a bit of a rarity yourself, though, I think, and I find it absolutely incredible. I've driven all over Australia pretty much. I've driven from Darwin to Melbourne to Sydney, and it's far enough to drive. It must have been a truly epic experience on a bike. Have you ever heard of the Red X trial? I have heard of the Red X trial. Yeah, I've seen a film of it. Laurie Whitehead, he won it a couple of times. And Dale, the one I went to Africa with, we went to the Ample trial all around Australia also. We did that in a VW Beetle. So you've done more than just ride the bike then. You've done a heck of a lot of things. I've seen a lot about Australia. I did the Canning Stock Route. I did the Simpson Desert. I've seen just about all around Australia in diving underwater, right up to New Guinea, right up to the Bismarck Sea up there. Yeah. Yeah, New Guinea, all underwater. So you got to Australia, you saw the Olympic Games. Did you go back to Germany or did you just decide to stay here then? I'll tell you a funny story about that because we never thought we could make it, but in New Delhi, mm-hmm. We went to the Australian embassy again after being in Istanbul and Aleppo and all that, at Damascus rather. They wouldn't have been real keen to see you. They never gave us a visa. But in New Delhi, this fella had been in Cologne in the Australian embassy, an Australian fella from Melbourne. Yeah. And he said, look, I'm a little bit in a hurry. I suppose you've got enough money. You had to have $700 each. I said, of course, of course we have. He says, okay, yeah, quick. I got to have a luncheon meeting and it went bang, bang, bang. And we had a visa for three months. Wow. That's how we got into Australia. But now you live here, obviously, because I'm talking to you now. You're in Melbourne and you live in Melbourne. You want to read what happened in Australia because finally, Ibu Fatmawati, the government of Indonesia, they paid our fare by Qantas. And we sell bicycles and everything. And a couple of the ministers even went to the airport with us and wished us good luck. We came to Melbourne where one of the engines had busted. We nearly crash-landed in Darwin. And when we got to Darwin, it was the unfriendliest place you've ever seen in your life. Darwin unfriendly? Yeah, it was totally... At first, we couldn't get out of the plane. Mm. They had to put foam all over it. When we finally got our bikes and our luggage, we put it all together and we tried to get out through customs and they wouldn't let us go. They put us into another room mm. and they took us totally apart. Yeah. They looked at everything in case we smuggled something. Yeah. Then they wanted to take the tires of our bicycles. Yeah. And that is when Uli really told them where to go. An officer came out and he had a look at it and he said, yeah, well, let them go. And we finally got there and I got a photograph and the signpost, Darwin, five and a half miles, about 10 kilometers away. Yeah. And we were thirsty. We were so thirsty and hot. And we jumped on our bikes, finally left the bloody airport. Yeah. And we thought we were in the Wild West. (laughs) Yeah, there were these guys, black and white, with huge hats. Yes. 
It was dilapidated houses, you know, dogs running around and kids running around. Yeah. The dark kids and white kids. And we went into town finally. And there was a pub. And it says, this is a main pub. And on the side said, women, you know, women only. That's right. Yeah, yep. yeah that'd be right. Yeah. yeah and there was horses, yep. about nine horses to a, to a pole type of thing, you know. Yeah, at the front, a rail, hitching rail, yeah. Yeah, and we thought we were in the Wild West. And I'm sure. bloody John Wayne or Richard Whitmark or any of those would come with their bloody pistols. I got a question for you though, Fred. Yeah. How was the beer, mate? Was the beer all right? Well, Theo never drank beer. And in the Arabic country, you cannot buy Coca-Cola because it belongs to a Jewish company, you see? Yeah. So you can only get Pepsi-Cola. Yeah. And we didn't drink very much. We mainly drank Pepsi-Cola. Or when we came here, we wanted the Coke. Yeah. We went into this pub and it was full of people. Yep. Huge bar, and the radios were blaring, and we found out later, of course, it was the Melbourne football thing and the cricket and the races. Yes. The footy finals, the grand final in Melbourne. And it'd be on the radio, and everyone would be around. Yeah, and a fellow was walking around with a big bag and people throwing money into it. Yep. We found out later on, a SP bookmaker. Yeah. There was always three in a row of blokes standing there drinking their pots. Yep. And finally a barman came, what do you want, fellas? And Uli pointed his fingers, three Coca-Cola, please. Yep. That's in Darwin, right? Where the most beer is consumed in the world. That's right, yeah. Well, I'd have thought three German lads would have been right into having a beer. <laughs> yeah, well, you know? yeah, Uli and I were, but not there. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, the bloke says, what do you want? Mm. Three Coca-Cola, please. Yeah. And instantly the radios went quiet <laughs> and the barman said, what do you want? F***ing <laughs> Cokes. If you want f***ing Cokes, go to the f***ing milk bar across the road. <laughs> That's where you get your f***ing Coke. <laughs> I got a half a page in my book written about the word because we never heard that word before. We didn't even know what it meant or anything like that. We knew by the way he looked at us. We knew it was a swear word, of yeah, course. Yeah, of course. That's your exposure to Australia. Welcome to Australia. Yeah. Well, look, I'd love to talk to you a lot more, Fred. I really would, but I'm out of time. That's okay, my friend. And I'd love to talk to you again at some time. And if I get down to Melbourne, I will. I just want to make sure everyone knows if they want to know any more about what you've done, Journey of a Lifetime by Fred Glasbrenner. It's on Amazon. Oh, yes, it's on Amazon, yeah. Fred, thanks for talking to me. Thanks for giving me your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. And like I said, if you look into Google and the Fred Glasbrenner, it'll come up and you'll see quite a few things there. I'm going to come down and have some of that beer, though. Okay. I'm going to have an Apollonia beer now. I think you should. Thanks, Fred. Thank you very much. See you later. Bye. Oh, dear. I don't know what to say after that. I really don't. It took some very unexpected turns. That was Fred Glasbrenner. I mean, you heard the conversation. You just can't stay on track with him, and, and it just goes on. So what an interesting guy. I'm going to have to try that beer, and that's that. When it comes to road transport, safety is everything. 
Seeing Machines Guardian minimizes the risk of fatigue and distraction for drivers and provides real-time monitoring centre analysis and appropriate intervention. Already trusted by more than 400 of the safest road transport businesses around the world, find out how Seeing Machines Guardian can safeguard your fleet, your valuable cargo and most importantly, your drivers. Visit www.seeingmachines.com It's time for That's What You Think. Some say they're too opinionated for their own good. Some say they're just a pair of grumpy old men. We just know them as Mike and Andy. Wake me when the show starts. It's already been on a while. Wake me when it's over. Hey, Mike. Hey, how are ya? Good, mate. Listen, as a working truck driver, mm-hmm. how annoying do you find those grey nomads towing big caravans around? <laughs> Sometimes they can be extremely frustrating, my friend. Yeah. So how does it feel to be that guy? <laughs> uh, how does it feel to be that guy? I'm actually quite enjoying myself at the moment. I've got the UHF in the car and I'm out here and uh, generally amusing myself. And I call them around and all the rest of it. I've had a couple of blokes that probably could stand some education about how to overtake a caravan safely, but yeah, yeah. it's not a one-way street. No, that's what I was wondering, you know, because from your point of view, normally from where you sit, it's a very different story from where you're sitting at the moment. Yeah. And just wondering, with the boot on the other foot, wearing the other hat and every other cliche you can think of, how you are finding trucks on the road as a caravan driver? Well, I can tell you now, my car and my caravan are fairly well sort of matched and without putting too fine a point on it, I've got it loaded up with the weight limit with moving across and all the rest of it. Yep. With the bit of wild weather that we've been having, some of these V-doubles and that that go past, because I can't sit on 100 kilometres an hour, I just can't do it. Mm. And some of these V-doubles that fly past, particularly there's a couple out there flew past on the Hay Plains the other day, and I appreciate their position, I really do, but I'll tell you what, man, they had both hands on the steering wheel sometimes. I'll bet. I've done a lot of kilometres and it's quite unnerving to feel the way the air displaces around the van because there's not a hell of a lot of room. Mm. White lines move on the road sometimes. Yeah, I've heard that. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't take a hell of a lot. It's a pretty big sail and it can be quite unnerving. So I understand it's been a bit of an eye-opener for me. Now, obviously, you know, I have the advantage of being able to talk to the drivers on the UHF and fairly aware of what's going on around me and Yep. watching out for my safety and all that sort of stuff. Maybe some people aren't quite so aware when they're towing their caravans. Yeah. But on the back of that, I really don't understand why there's no specific training or endorsement for people to tow a caravan. By the time people get to their retirement and they've you know, spent their life driving around the metropolitan area, they get on by the big land cruiser and, and the big caravan and throw it on the back. Yep. And knowing what I know about what truck drivers will do and how it actually feels to tow one of these caravans... Mm. it's an equation sometimes with not a very good outcome. Yeah. I think really some more training wouldn't go astray. Yeah, fair call. And just out of interest, sake, there's a lot of kerfuffle about caravans parking in truck rest areas. Mm. As a caravan tower, how are you finding it, finding places for you to pull up without having to resort to parking in truck rest areas? I'm not having any trouble finding places to park, but having said that, Mm. I know where a truck would park. Yep. And I know where, if I park the caravan, I'm not going to be in the way. Mm-hmm. So there's an education process that could go on there. You know, Rod Hanapi's tried to do this several times with the people that he's worked with, the caravanning groups and all that sort of stuff. Yep. There is an education process that you can go through. Now, 
whether that education filters through to the people that need it or not, it's another matter. Yep. But for me personally, I don't see a problem. Having said that, this thing that I'm telling is a fairly big unit and there aren't a lot of choices to where you can park sometimes. You know, it's 3.2 metres tall, I think, with the air conditioner on top. Mm-hmm. So I get a little bit wary and because it's so long, it kicks up when you go through gutters and I'm a little bit wary about some of these low warnings. It comes down to sharing the road and sharing the facilities. It really does. And that's an educational process. Yep. You know, perhaps if we write a little bit more about it, talk about it a little bit more, get into some of the caravan magazines and things like that and have a bit of a chat about it. Yep. You know, I'm seriously thinking about taking some snaps and maybe approaching some of the caravan magazines with a written feature for them to publish and see what they say. Yeah. Well, just take it easy with that height with the low bridges and things. <laughs> We don't want to see you on the front page of Big Rigs news feed. No, no, you won't see me on the front page of Big Rigs. I promise I won't try and tell it through a McDonald's drive-thru. <laughs> <laughs> on many levels, good. Well, I've seen pictures of it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it would be a good idea to tow their Jayco through a McDonald's drive-thru. All right. So how far into the trip are you now? We're over halfway across. So I'm actually sitting in the caravan park at Streaky Bay now. That's good. It's really quite nice that we've cracked it for the school holidays, so Discovery Caravan Park Bikey Gang is running around. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, i tell you what, the kids have got more energy. I wish I was a kid again. Yeah, well, hopefully by the time you get into the west, all those cyclones will have sorted themselves out and nicked off. Yeah, well, we're not rushing into it, mate. Good, good. We're going to have a bit of a look. Go down to Margaret River and buy some processed grapes. Yeah, yeah, well, you got my address. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Just tell them to leave the cartons at the door. Okay, I yeah. will. All right, mate. Well, safe travels. We'll talk with you again next week. You can feedback where you're up to. Thanks very much, mate. You take care, and we'll see you on the road. See ya. Hey, everyone. Kermie here. Hope you're travelling well, staying safe, and on the right side of the white line, by which, of course, I mean the left. I also hope you're tuning in to the On The Road podcasts with Mike and Andy, because if you're not, two things will happen. One, you'll be missing out on some great interviews, a good few laughs, and what's generally going on out there in truckland. Uh, what's the other thing? Ah, that's it. You won't have heard this plug for On The Road. Hmm. Okay then, so, those of you who are already on here, go and tell your mates about On The Road. They can find it on Spotify or iTunes at On The Road Aussie Trucking Podcast. But you knew that, didn't you? Because you're already... Yeah, look, just go and sell them, okay? Cheers and take care of you. Just a quick word about our sponsors. Go to our webpage, www.ontheroadpodcast.com.au and you can see who the friends of the show are. And if their products are something that you are interested in or something that you may need, please support them because they support us and they bring our show to you. Road News is brought to you by Big Rigs, Australia's national road transport newspaper. Morning, Mike. News time again? It is news time, mate. Firstly, though, you know I'm a bit of a garage sale kind of guy. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, I went to one last weekend and picked up three old calculators to add to my collection. Mm-hmm. i got about a hundred of them now. It's amazing how quickly they add up. It's been bloody weak. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to hit you with something heavy, mate, seriously. Yeah, I'll duck, run for cover. <laughs> All right, mate, first up, we've heard that the truck driver who has pleaded guilty to four counts of culpable driving after causing the deaths of four police officers on Melbourne's Eastern Freeway last year will spend at least 18 and a half years behind bars. 
Yes, indeed. And old mate Mo Hinder Singh, the driver responsible for the deaths of the four police officers on the Eastern Freeway, has been sentenced to 18 and a half years. He's already been in the slot for a year. Mm. Really, there's not too much to say about this. He's been found guilty of more than just the culpable driving causing death of these individuals. He's also been found guilty of a charge of drug dependence and three charges of trafficking of a drug of dependence. So mm. without putting too fine a point on it, I'm happy to see the man in jail. Better off the road, yep. I don't think personally, and you know, some of the conversations I've had with others, that the time that this bloke getting is anywhere near enough. Mm. He's apologised to the families. Well, I'm sure they're grateful for that. Yeah. I personally feel for the families, anyone, no matter who they are, that loses their life at work, deserves to be remembered and their families looked after. It troubles me greatly that we have people like this driving trucks and I am happy to see the back of him. Now, we'll be very interested to see what happens now. Mm. His operations manager's been charged with manslaughter over the crash, mm -hmm. but he's planning to contest those allegations against him. Mohinder Singh said that he'd been pushed hard to do the extra load that he was doing at the time the incident happened. Mm. Let's see if the chain of responsibility has got any teeth at all. Yeah. From the Big Rigs news feed, it's officially been called the second National Roadworthiness Survey, mm. but to most truckies, the upcoming truck health check will probably feel a lot like any other compliance blitz. It will. Every year we do this thing, and every year we go out and take the pulse of the nation's trucks, so to speak, yep. and they try to make it sound like an all fuzzy, all lovely, all things to everyone sort of a, an idea. But it amuses me that they warn us, because a lot of blokes plan their holidays for while this is on. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. it gets hard to find a truck when these guys are running around. Now, listen, don't make the mistake of thinking that I'm against any of this stuff because I'm not. Our trucks on our roads need to be safe and they need to be seen to be safe. Yep. But we are safe and we're doing a pretty good job, I think. And the numbers say that we're doing a pretty good job. In fact, if we look at another story that's on the Big Rigs news section, mm. There's a story there about New South Wales Police releasing the results of their Operation Convoy truck blitz, which they had not that long ago. Yep. They're talking about impaired driving, mechanical standards, load restraint, and all that sort of stuff. They stopped 500 trucks as part of the operation. Mm. They did 221 random roadside drug tests. They got seven positive results. Now, that's not good. Mm. But they issued 200 infringement notices for a range of offences relating to fatigue, load restraint, and dimensional breaches. Mm -hmm. They defected nine trucks and issued eight cautions out of 500. Yep. You could walk around any truck in any yard in Australia, and if you couldn't find something on it that you couldn't defect, like an oil leak or something like that, I would be amazed. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to go and do these things. We're going to have our annual truck survey slash blitz, and hopefully there'll be some results come out of it. But I'd really, really love to know what the real numbers are. You know, we all know that the stats are saying that heavy vehicle involved accidents are declining, and we all know that heavy vehicle involved accidents resulting in fatalities are often not the fault of the heavy vehicle or the driver. It just seems to me that some of these facts that exist in the statistics get swept under the carpet. I think it's time for a light to be shone on some of the numbers in a positive way. Yeah. And, mate, young fella known as the Travelling Jackaroo is now well on his way on a 14,500-kilometre journey across Australia on a 1957 Chamberlain 9G tractor. This kid is just awesome. Yeah. I've had a bit of a read of this and seen the picture. The picture's amazing. He's got more shit strapped on this track than he can poke a stick at. He's got an aeroplane, a boat. Yeah. He does have an orange beacon on there, though. Yeah. Plenty of signs. He's doing a great 
great, great thing. Yes. 14,500 kilometres around the country in his old tractor. Mm. I'll tell you what, it's been a long time. This 18-year-old Sam Hughes, his name is, from the Sunshine Coast, has been planning this adventure. He got as far as Roma before he needed to visit the workshops. He's done all right. Yep. If you see him on the road, give him a two, chuck him a few bucks. He's trying to raise money for the RFDS and Dolly's Dream and all those things that we in the transport industry support. He's always on Channel 40 on the UHF. Give him a hoy, say good day. This young fella's doing a great job, 100%. And if I happen to spot him on the road, I'll give him a hoy and chuck a few bucks at him because it's a great thing he's doing. It is indeed. Mate, an outrageous proposal to increase some truck registration charges by up to 220% has drawn an angry response from the CEO of the Australian Trucking Association. Yeah. Now, you know as well as anyone, mate, I am as ready to bag the ATA as anybody. <laughs> this time, old mate Andrew McCullough has got it 100% right. I had a text message exchange with a fellow who should remain nameless yesterday saying that some of us have got the wrong end of the stick about this and we might want to think about what we're saying. Mm. And I said, mate, so where's the report? So I got the link to the report and I've actually read the whole report. I got two-thirds of the way through it before I fell asleep and I had to finish it when I woke up. But <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. In their own report, they argue that some of the research they've done is pretty thin. Yep. And the guts of the report is what we're focusing on. You can read the whole report in its entirety. There is a link to it in the story. The fact of the matter is that the net effect these guys are focusing on is quick and nasty way to deal with what they call a problem, and that's the ageing truck fleet. It is going to kill industry. It's going to kill businesses. It's going to affect a lot of people. Mm. I'm not going to talk about it anymore, mate, because our friend Tones cut a video on it, and I've got to say that after reading the report, listening to what Tones has got to say, I'm more on Tones' side and the ATA side than this report. I really am. So we'll throw to Tones and let him tell the story. Yeah, he's been good enough to allow us to do it. So that's coming up next in Something to Talk About. Okay, mate. Well, just quickly, you know, told my wife the other day that I thought her underwear was too revealing. <laughs> What'd she tell you to stop wearing it? She, uh, she suggested I wear my <laughs> own then. <laughs> Uru. Oh, you're an idiot. See ya. Bye. <laughs> All the latest industry news, go to www.bigrigs.com.au. G'day guys, how are you going? So I want to talk about something here that is very relevant and uh, needs to be out in the public eye and spoken about in depth. So effectively, Austroads has come out with a report development at the moment recommending increases to registrations for heavy vehicles and in particular trucks of 10 years plus mark. So the ATA's findings, the Australian Transport Association has found that 400,000 heavy vehicles will be affected by these increases with 150,000 of the older trucks copying a full 220% increase on their registrations per year. So from what I gather, Osroads is actually selling this as combating climate change and carbon emissions, etc., on those older trucks, which aren't fitted with carbon fighting systems like this one, which I run an ABLU system and a muffler, which costs about $18,000 for one of these mufflers and about $100 per week in ABLU. But the drama that there's going to be with all these older trucks that are on the road, it is going to wreck families and businesses. Bang, like that. Even right at this point right now, 
The value of these older trucks is effectively halved and no one's going to buy them based on these new registration costs that are gonna come our way. A few of the people that are going to be hurt by this are gonna be your owner drivers, your small businesses, and that's small fleets too, that sort of turn over trucks every five to 10 years time because based on these new registration costs, not many people are gonna to wanna to take the chance with a truck that's about eight years old, knowing damn well in a couple of years time, it's gonna cost them a fortune. So with these businesses, they're effectively dead in the water right now at upgrading to a new truck because that trade-in price is nowhere near what it would have been two days ago, actually. So it's not just line haul interstate type stuff. It's your farmers that are only running a truck for two, three weeks, a year, sometimes two or three months type thing. And it's your local yard trucks also that are just doing a bit here and there just to pick up the pace they're all of a sudden not gonna be sustainable to run. And it's not just that, it's just small pallet companies that are just moving little bits of furniture every now and again. They're not going to be able to afford these massive costs when they're only running the truck one or two, three days a week. So effectively, all these businesses now that have a, an older truck or an older fleet aren't going to be able to upgrade because they can't sell this older stuff now. So that stuff has just become obsolete and you're basically gonna send companies bankrupt and small families, businesses, those types of things also, owner drivers. There's so much more that comes into this from just pumping up the prices a little bit and trying to sell it as something else. When to me, all I see here is a nice cash grab, but the repercussions of what could come of this is going to be devastating. And to be honest, I hate the ideas of these, you know, about blockades like Razorback and that type of stuff, but I could really see people on their knees here and having no other options, just feeling dead in the water and what are you gonna do? And, and to be honest, definitely support anyone else that is effectively got their whole life on the line and just gonna get it taken away. I think we need to really talk more about this and what could be done rather than just whacking up registration costs. It's a pathetic way of doing things, as you ask me. There's positive ways to try and get people to upgrade to newer vehicles. And a couple of examples of that could be bigger rebate on diesel costs. The Ad Blue cost me $100 per week. Perhaps that could be free because all that's doing is purely combating carbon, those types of things. Cost for tolls at the moment is absolutely ridiculous and that's enough to bring people to their knees. How about a bit of relief on that? Encourage people that when they've got these newer vehicles, they actually get these kickbacks rather than punishing people for the latter. So there you go guys, something to think about and as I say, it's only early days and that type of thing, but a few things to consider and take into consideration before we just start jacking up prices on registration in an industry that's already very fine lined with the money that can be made on a yearly basis, let alone pumping it into registrations. Cheers guys, we'll catch you later. Taking us out from the show this week is a thought-provoking song that tells the story of a trucker who ponders on the decisions and the choices he's made in his life, what feels good and what feels right. Here's Randy Travis with Spirit of a Boy, Wisdom of a Man.
With so much riding on the choice at hand The spirit of a boy Or the wisdom of a man Hearts caught fire And love ran wild She cried the day she called to say She was having his child With so much riding on the choice at hand The spirit of a boy Or the wisdom of a man There's a constant contradiction What feels good and what feels right You live with decision That you make in your life And what steers your direction it's hard to understand The spirit of a boy All the wisdom of a man Well, that brings us to the end of another On The Road show. We hope you enjoyed it. On The Road is brought to you by NTI, Australia's leading transport and logistics insurer. Visit the website at nti.com.au. For more On The Road news and additional features, visit our website at www.ontheroadpodcast.com.au. Be sure to join us same time next week. In the meantime, play nice with each other and most of all, stay safe out there. Bye for now. The team here at On The Road are great believers in the right to free speech, and whilst we might not always be in 100% agreement with the views and opinions of our guests and contributors, we firmly support their right to hold and express those opinions. Just a few short years ago But tonight at a truck stop I'll drink in a cup The waitress grins and winks at him And says my shift's almost up With so much riding on the choice at hand The spirit of a boy All the wisdom of a man so much riding on the choice of hand The spirit of a boy All the wisdom of a man